This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb F., Stephen, an unsigned chronicler, Emmeline, and Caleb J. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Caleb F., who asks, Why do we have a basket in the back of the sanctuary for offerings instead of passing one around? Caleb, the simple answer is that when our church first started, this is just the way we happened to do it. And we became so used to having the basket in the back that we didn't want to switch. I don't think there's anything wrong with passing an offering plate around, but having a basket or box in the back for offerings is actually an older way of doing it, which I kind of like. Also, we live in an increasingly cashless society, which means that giving is often done online. In fact, when I was in Washington, D.C. recently, I visited a church where they pass a plate around, and by the time it reached me, the plate was nearly empty, even though there were hundreds of people there. Why? Because most people don't carry cash or checkbooks around these days. However the offering is collected, though, the important thing is to dedicate it with prayer during our worship service, because giving, like everything else we do in a church service, is an act of worship. And now Stephen asks, Why was the prophet Elijah afraid? In 1 Kings 19, verse 3, we learn that when Queen Jezebel threatened his life, The prophet Elijah was afraid and ran away into hiding. The question is, why was he afraid? After all, in 1 Kings 18, he just called down fire from heaven and defeated all the prophets of Baal. It was a great victory. If anything, you'd think he should have been fearless at that point. It should have been Jezebel who was afraid, right? Well, here's the thing. God often works through very fragile and fearful human beings. Just because he does great things through them doesn't mean that they are transformed into great men. In fact, it's quite common in Scripture for the people God uses in mighty ways to demonstrate their remaining weakness. The apostles are a great example of this. They receive spiritual power from Jesus that allows them to work the same miraculous signs that he does. Once that happens, you might expect them to be pretty fearless. But no, they meet with setbacks, they feel confusion and fear, just like normal human beings. Because that's what they are. I think the reason God does it this way is so that we never make the mistake of thinking that the miracles were performed by the power of men. He doesn't want us to elevate these human servants to the level of heroes, let alone demigods. Instead, their lives make it clear that no matter what great things they've done, they continue to need God and rely on Him. And it's the same for us, too.
it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from an unsigned chronicler. Let's give our chronicler a round of applause. Here's the question. How do we know that the Bible is God's word? How do we know the authors didn't twist the words or that translations over time changed what the Bible says? First off, the questions I answer for the big question are written by young disciples in Grace's Youth Chronicle every week. Sometimes the chronicles are turned in without the person's name written down. But just because you forgot to write your name doesn't mean you haven't asked a great question. In the past, I've referred to these as anonymous questions, but that sounds a little ominous, so instead we're going to call them questions from unsigned chroniclers. And this one is a doozy. Really, there are three questions here, or at least three parts of a larger question. We're going to tackle each one, but we'll do it in reverse order. So we'll start with whether translations of the Bible have corrupted the meaning over time. Then we'll look at whether the original authors twisted God's words. And finally, we'll consider how we know that the Bible is God's word. The easiest of these questions is the last. How do we know that translations over time haven't changed what the Bible says? Well, we know because we don't just have translations. We also have the original Hebrew and Greek Testaments. Whenever I have a question about whether a particular translation is accurate, I can compare it to other translations. And I can also look at the underlying Hebrew and Greek to see whether the English version is accurate. With a little study and the right tools, you can do the same thing. In fact, people studying the Bible do this all the time. Now, the middle question is harder. How do we know that the human authors of the Bible didn't twist God's words? Is it possible that the Holy Spirit told someone, Paul for example, to write down one thing, but instead he wrote something else? Not according to our doctrine of inspiration. The way the Bible describes the inspiration of Scripture is God-breathed. It regards what the human authors actually wrote down as Scripture, not just what the Spirit told them to write down. So, if we take the Bible's own word at face value, there's no question of human authors twisting God's words. The Spirit exercises much more power over the process than that. Also, if human authors were putting their own twist on things, you would expect that over the thousands of years during which the Bible was written, its teachings would be very much out of sync. But they aren't. The more you study the Bible, the more connections you discover, even at the most minute levels. In fact, I was talking recently to someone who works in Bible publishing, and he told me that witnessing all these underlying consistencies filled him with confidence that the Bible is of divine origin. The first and most important part of the question is, how do we know that the Bible is God's word? Usually, when people answer this question today, they make arguments like the one I just mentioned. All the pieces of the Bible fit together in a way that cannot be simply the word of men. Or they point to the fulfillment of prophecy or the vast, reliable manuscript record. These are all good arguments, and there are plenty more. 
The interesting thing, though, is that in the Reformation and in our own Westminster Confession of Faith, we are told that our confidence in the Bible as God's Word should not ultimately rest on any of these arguments, good as they may be. Instead, it is the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit that matters. In other words, the foundation is God's work in us, convincing and persuading us, not us weighing evidence and judging whether God's word is true. I think this is profound to reflect on. Skepticism is ultimately invincible. If you're determined not to believe something, then no logical argument or piece of evidence will ever convince you. We see this reality played out every day in politics, in courtrooms, in everyday conversation. We tell ourselves that we believe what we believe because we are smart, logical people who follow the evidence, and that those who disagree are dumb, irrational people who ignore the facts. When it comes to the ultimate truth of the gospel, though, you don't believe because you're a superior person. That would be salvation by your own merit, but rather because God is working in you. It makes sense that ultimately our confidence in his word would work the same way as our confidence in his salvation. And now before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Emmeline asks, I hear you've been to jail. Why was that? Emmelyn, you're right. I have been to jail. It happened more than two decades ago. I was 30 years old, just out of grad school, and I was arrested the weekend before I was supposed to start teaching Sunday school for the first time. In fact, the first thing I did when they released me was call my pastor and tell him now that I was a jailbird, I'd understand if he didn't want me to teach a class. But he was so desperate for teachers that he wouldn't even hear of it. Now, if you want to know why I was arrested and what happened, I actually write about this in my book, Rethinking Worldview. You'll find all the details there. And now Caleb J. asks, Can you join the youth group Fantasy Football League? Caleb, of course, I can join the league, if you mean can in the sense of ability. To say that you can do something means that you are able to do it, and yes, I am able to join. The real question is, will I join? I have to warn you, I have participated in fantasy leagues before, and my strategy is just to let the computer make all the decisions for me. In fact, I almost won the Worldview Academy Fantasy Baseball League one year by letting the computer choose my team and never making another change the whole season. I was up against guys who lived and breathed sports, and they made daily adjustments to their rosters. But I finished in second place, and that pretty much satisfied any itch I had to play fantasy sports. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Question.